0: Into the storied podcast. This week's episode, we continue part two of our Montana Antelope Story. We break down the stock on a group of antelope Alec and Ruben spotted. They work into these animals and decide they're going to try and double up to fill the remaining of their buck and tags. Listen in and see if they can pull off the improbable.
1: And the the day before opener, we spotted Uh, about a 12 or 14 pack bedded down only about 600 yards off the road in plain sight of this one spot of state land. And I think we commented that like, Oh, those things are going to get shot instantly on opening morning. We come back through after we're, you know, covering tons of ground the evening and the, the morning previous and just side note, this country is so beautiful. Alec took a few really good panoramic shots at sunset and everything. And it's just like that golden seed head grass with some swales and like rolling hills. And then the sky out there at, in October, as it slanted light, really dark blue on the, you know, the opposite side of the sunset, really orangeish red where the sun's going down. It's just, and just very dry, you know, clean air. It's, it's amazing. So we we had a great time, even though we didn't see a lot of animals. Um, But we get back to that spot where that that group of antelope, we thought we're going to get just shot up opening morning. And we're just stopping, rolling down the windows and glassing out of the truck far away to see if we can turn anything up while listening to Biggie Smalls the whole time, mind you. Um, (laughs) And we stop in that same group of antelope. They're not where they were, but they're across a pretty big uh, ravine about three quarters of a mile away from the road. And they're they're pretty much bedded out in broad daylight. We were very surprised that nobody had been pulled over to go make a play on them. So we're like, well, okay, here we go. Like, it's going to be kind of a hard approach because they're kind of on the little crow's nest up there. Like they can see a lot of directions from where they're at. But we're like, well, let's let's look at the topography and let's give this thing a try. And we pull back over, pull on the side of the road and park and start getting our guns out. And no sooner than that, another truck rolls up and rolls up to us and asks, hey, you guys going after those pronghorn? And we're like, yeah. He's like, good luck, man. If I was here five minutes ago, you would have been asking me. (laughs) Like, you know. (laughs) Um, So we just happened upon him like that. Um, Alec, what was your rundown of like that situation? I think I wanted there were two draws going down in a V. I wanted to take the one draw, but you thought you didn't feel comfortable with getting like not being spotted from that approach.
2: Yeah. And I, I think that, um, it's really hard to know the angles on the landscape in which you'll get spotted, you know, like, do you have enough room within that kind of shallow bowl to kind of skirt down below their line of vision? And, you know, once you get below that, And if they don't move, you're kind of safe. Right. And I think from what I can remember, we started to go down this one bowl and we could see them. And I don't know, I got a weird feeling. I was like looking on maps and sort of at this other ridgeline. I was like, if we go up and around and drop into that draw, we can go all the way across toward them and then maybe get eyes on them and, and make a play. But like we started going down this, that front draw sort of this front facing draw opposite of the drainage of them. And I think that, yeah, I don't know. After day one of of craziness, I think they were going to probably see that. And, um, and we agreed. we both, we were bouncing the idea off each other and it was a great decision because we backed out, hiked around that little other Ridge and then cut down on this draw and just went unseen. And, um, in the most miraculous type of, of way, somehow, <laughs> you know, we we start to work our way down that draw and we're trying to get eyes on them and we realize, oh, they're coming down into the drainage towards us.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah, it was Take perfect.
1: <laughs> like, and, and it was more of that the first draw was a little bit wider and not as cut and the one that we decided to go down had a lot more cut bank from erosion where it was like, head high straight you know cut bank like straight down from the top of it so a lot more like sharp edges to hide behind versus more like open pan kind of you know bowl um and yeah they're coming down what time of day was that it had to been like one or two in the afternoon
2: i would say it was mid-afternoon yeah
1: yeah um Probably because we had just finished the deep dish pizza from the night before the leftovers, so that's about the time I would think we'd finish it. It'd be about one or two in the afternoon, and um, we got down in the very bottom of this. Is I think it was sage, right? In the very bottom,
2: a lot of sage, yes, yeah. tall sage too.
1: So there's a pretty wide wash in the bottom. We're in one of the tributary washes. And there's a sage flat in the bottom. And there's a couple of cottonwood trees, honestly, too, like on the edges of this bottom. And they're coming down the hill. Um, I'm trying to remember when we made our move. Did we get down to that shooting position before they crested and came down and waited as they came down? Or did they come all the way down and were out of sight and then we got to that spot?
2: I would say... Um kind of as we were coming across this drainage or down we we dropped into this coolie and there were a lot of different little crevices that um, you know as you're coming down through a coolie you're looking over tiny finger ridges and trying to keep eyes on your target and I think as we were doing that we were just trying not to get seen but we did see them coming down the face of this draw from what I remember and problem being Um, the draw we were coming down sort of led to the main draw and they were coming down the face of the other side. Directly opposite. Yeah, directly opposite. But further down this main draw is a private boundary.
1: Not far either, like 200 yards.
2: Yeah. And it's hard because when you're doing that and you're sort of like, you're kind of pulling up your maps and you're like, how close are we to that border? Especially because number one, once they cross, they're out. But number two, if you're going to shoot one, you better hope they don't run on the private. Um, and so we were trying to do that as we were moving. And so we're tucking behind these cut banks and stuff. Um, but yeah, we were seeing them come down that face. And so I think we were trying to get to the spot where we were going to have a shot as they dropped into the bottom. And there was a couple big um, sort of old cottonwood trees, I think, in the bottom there. And Yeah. Um, yeah. So I I think uh, that was It was interesting because we were on the move But also we knew they were On the move and we were trying to beat them to uh, To the spot I guess Yeah,
1: And it was pretty nice too because it was Hot so we didn't want to be Out there for longer than we needed to be
2: <laughs> It was yeah
1: um, But yeah so we got down There and we're basically 10 15 feet elevation above The very bottom of this draw And we're at a cut bank and We're Lined up perpendicular to the cut bank, peering over it. Sun is directly in our face. So I think you were really worried about scope shine at this point. Um,
2: I was, I was, but um, they seem pretty preoccupied. So yeah, maybe that was just uh, thinking too much about it.
1: <laughs> yeah. So they filtered down into the sage flat and we, we have the same plan. Alex shot a buck the day before. I shot a doe. Rolls are reversed. I'm on the gun and i have a bipod but i did not flip it open but still the connection of the bipod and like the hardware of it below the stock of my rifle was about one inch and that actually played a huge part in this because we were on a pretty like very low slope it wasn't a hard slope on the opposite side of the cut bank so I had my rifle I was prone I wasn't prone I was like on my knee and then my my elbow was resting on the top of the cut bank cuz it was about a 2 foot drop and I had the gun there in the the very short grass and the only way I could see through the scope over the seed heads of the grass was because that bipod connection was keeping the rifle just high enough that I could see through the scope Like the, the actual barrel, like I was shooting out of grass, like the barrel was in the grass. And at this point, the pronghorn come down to the sage flat and they are less than 200 yards away. And they just start feeding and feeding and feeding and feeding. And, um, and it's kind of cool too, because there were three bucks in the group. One of them was a shooter buck. Two of them were like, I don't know, one and a half year old, but I don't, I'm not very up on, pronghorn biology but i would guess they were like the first year that they had real horns um barely had prongs on them and so it's obvious which one i'm going for problem being there's like 14 pronghorn bunched up here and i i can't between the sage and the other does like i'm on this buck for shit we were there for like 10 minutes at least and i'm and the the plan was for me to uh give Alec a thumbs up when the seconds before I was going to take the shot and I was going to take the shot, drop down behind the cut bank and he was going to pop up and take a shot on a dough If he had one, Ryan, how many times have you seen this work?
0: Yeah, never. (laughs) (laughs) You one, two, three at a deer. That is usually one, two, three. You're not going to get anything.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm like, crosshairs are on this buck and here's another little detail talking a little tactical thing that I, I forgot about i zeroed my rifle into 200 yards at this point the buck i'm trying to shoot at is about 140 or 150 i kind of forgot that i zeroed it at 200 yards so i have the crosshairs right exactly where i want to shoot this buck um and I'm holding it on him, and he's going back and forth between the dozen. It was just such a surreal thing. Because, like, I think I gave Alec a thumbs up that I was going to shoot like four times.
2: I think it was more like six times. Yeah. And I, uh, <laughs> the reason I asked him to do that, too, uh, I asked you to do that, Ruben, is that I, you know, I forgot my earplugs, I think, and have shot enough times without earplugs just because you're not thinking of it until the moment. But I, Every time you did that, I was <laughs> plugging my ears, and because I'm right behind you, um, b- behind that cut bank, and I've got my rifle sort of ready there. But um, yeah, I just I didn't want to get my yeah bell rung from
1: the and shot. Alec can't, can't see anything that's going on. I think you no, were so. just you were saying it was a pretty cool vantage point because you were just watching me and my facial expressions and body language as I was holding the gun on that buck for like it ten was minutes.
2: So cool. It was so cool because you would you would tense up and I would watch your fingers slowly move toward that trigger, and you'd get super steady and, and be shouldered and but then you would sort of back off and then you would give me the thumbs up again <laughs> yeah, <I was> just <laughs> plus again but uh, you know it was all in good time and it was I did peek over a couple times I don't know if I even told you this but I peeked over a couple times just to see what the heck was going on and. Um, It was really cool because again, this is the day after the, you know, first day of the season, and these pronghorn are just doing their natural thing down in this nice sage bottom and they're just feeding. They're just doing their thing. And I I mean, I think that's the coolest the coolest thing ever in hunting is when you can watch them for a while. Yeah. You can enjoy seeing them. I
0: wonder how many people try to go after that same group. They've probably seen them from the road made a mistake that you guys were going to make. And then now you took the long way around to get into them the right way. And that yeah. would be interesting to, if, if anybody could ever test that, but
1: yeah, yeah, for I, sure. It, it worked man. out really well how we approached cause they had no clue we were there. And yeah. um, I think we would have been in a little more trouble if they were like a mule deer or something that had a good nose on them. Cause I, I don't, yeah. we didn't pay any attention to the wind, <laughs> but yeah. In fact, the only thing I feel like I pay attention for with the wind when I'm pronghorn hunting is noise, not scent. Yeah, um, yeah. hunt the animal. You're hunting. You know.
0: Yeah. So is not their strong suit.
1: So I'm on this buck for a long, long time. And finally, and he's, like, pushing does. Like, it, this is mid-October, but he was still almost kind of, like, showing a little rut activity where he was, like, pushing does around and pushing those little younger bucks around. And that was really cool, too, because I'd never watched antelope or pronghorn be pronghorn like that. And finally... The does part just a little bit to the, where the body width of that buck, there's nothing behind it and there's no doe that's facing him. So it's not like one's going to all of a sudden walk in front of him. Finally, I squeeze that trigger and boom. And, you know, like I I, I probably should get better at this, but like when I shoot, it's kind of like all of a sudden I'm out of the scope and just looking with my eyes after the shot goes off, you know, I kind of like miss what happens as the shot like I never am looking through my scope after the shot generally. Like I've touched it off. I had good mechanics, but I guess maybe my follow-through you use some work. But anyways, I'm like looking now, but I also know our plan. So I just kind of roll over. Like the buck disappeared. And all the the pronghorns start running and I just roll over and I plug my ear well no I had earplugs in. So I just roll over and Alec hops up and uh Turns out uh, they stop at about, what, 230? Something like that? I think they ran about 100 yards from where I shot.
2: I think around 200, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, yeah, I was right about where I felt zeroed.
1: Oh, so. And I think I ranged them for you.
2: You did. Yeah, you, you did.
1: popped up. I rolled down but still could see, and I hit the rangefinder. I think it was like 240 or something like that. And I told him, and he's like, you sure? And I'm like, yeah, and he shot. And the the – The doe starts running. I saw the the dirt fly behind her, and I thought that he shot high. So he's like, did I hit her? And I'm like, I think you shot over. Turns out we were at an upward angle, and it's just the fact that the bullet went through and hit above her behind because it was such a high angle that she was above Mm -hmm. us on the hill. And so he reloads, and was it on the run that you took your second shot?
2: Uh, might've been, I, I did think she was hit,
1: you know? Yeah. Um, you thought she was hit. I didn't. I
2: thought she was hit and I thought that, you know, it lost her in the recoil a little bit, but, um, yeah. And I think on the second shot, I flat
1: out missed, but I,
2: yeah, that was, No, no, uh, no. You
1: hit her twice.
2: Did I hit her twice? You right hit her twice times?
1: right in the pump house. Cause when we walked up on that thing, that was the most blood oh, yeah. I've ever seen out of an animal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah. That was,
1: uh. So unnecessarily was, Alec made two perfect shots.
2: I don't think it was on the run, the second one, because I...
1: She must have stopped, yeah.
2: Yeah, to be honest, I wouldn't have taken a shot at a running animal. but um, yeah. Unless you thought they, maybe
1: that you hit her already.
2: I think she stopped briefly. Um, yeah. That's what it was, too, because they had scattered the first shot, and then um, the front ones were running, and uh, I picked her out again. Yeah, anyway, that was... yeah.
1: Well, so then... <laughs> <laughs> they wrap down through the main draw and up the hill to the right of us and they actually are gonna come within about shooting range again of us and Alex yelling at me and I yelling, he's like saying to me like it's the buck he shot in the group still, is the buck he shot in the group? And I'm looking and he's like, Would well, you have shot at any of those bucks? And there's just the two small ones left. I'm like, I wouldn't have taken shots at those two. I don't see the one that I shot at. He's like, Okay, and they ran up the hill. And I'm like, Okay, I think like there should be a a pronghorn down over there. Right. So we stand up, we're looking around and we, we know his is down pretty much. Like she didn't leave. She went right over a little ridge about 300 yards away and got lost behind a cottonwood tree, but she didn't leave. So we we're like, that, came that back. Was, yeah. yeah. Um
2: That was the funny part too, is that like when you had initially shot, I mean all hell break, broke loose and we were trying to determine like, where is the buck that you shot at? Yeah. And, uh, yeah let you take it away but
1: yeah and so this is this is like I'll never forget this it was like we knew his dough was down we're in the bottom of this draw the sun is high but like starting to come down in the sky so it's kind of like straight away from us like shining straight on us so it's away and like the shadows are towards us and I'm we step up when I have my gun up because I'm like you know if this thing pops up anywhere I need to shoot again and, and we're looking. I'm like, I swear, like, that is right where I shot. And we take, like, two steps to the left. And I all of a sudden just see a little sheen that's out of place, like a little reflection. And I'm like, I think that's his horn right there. And I think Alec took another couple steps. I so had a better angle. And he got his binos out. And he's like, yep, that's the horn. We got a double. And we, like, just started hugging. <laughs> we're like, oh, we doubled up. It never happens. And so we walked yeah. up, yeah. And what I was saying yeah. about zeroing in at 200, um, I actually I actually shot that pronghorn right below the spine at about 150 or 160 yards. So a little higher than I intended. The the, bat, the right to left was right where I wanted it, but it was a little high, which is probably why the thing just crumpled. Um, and so we went up and actually one of the best parts of this whole situation too was that there was a large cottonwood tree about a hundred yards from where this all happened. And so we both just helped each other with our animals and dragged that buck and dragged that doe under that cottonwood tree. Cause it was about 70 degrees out with direct sun. And we had a nice shady spot to cut these animals up. Took a couple pictures
2: first. It was, it was special. Yeah. And I, I, I do think, yeah, the doe was probably 30 40 yards and yours was a little bit further from yeah almost yeah. maybe 80 yards from that tree yeah um but in a in a in a landscape that is just sage as far as the eye can see and not that many mature yeah well cottonwood trees with a little bit of shade sure was nice cutting up in of the shade but um yeah I just I'll never forget that that glare coming off of uh, of that uh that horn um, yeah. where, where we finally confirmed because it just, everything happens so fast and you're watching these antelope run and you're like, is the, is the same buck in there? Is he injured? You didn't see him go down and, and to know that he just dropped real quick. Um, and then to confirm that just from one little horn sticking out from the sage and you see that glare and you have that confirmation. Well, we just, we just shot two antelope out of the same group, successful stock. And, um, that's like, that was the ideal situation that we'd hoped for from the yeah. start. We had a frustrating beginning of the day. And so that was a great, yeah. That and was a the great shade
1: moment. tree, the shade tree That's to true. top it all off was amazing to cut them up. Well, um, I say
0: before you say that, you guys should go into kind of the highs and lows of that hunt. You know, how you kind of dealt with all the pressure and stuff like that. And then to end it this way.
1: Yeah. Um, what what was uh, what was the high point for you, Alec, of the whole? What was the thing that stuck out to you the most? Is the best thing of that hunt?
2: Well, I think it was those twofold experiences where we actually, you know, at least for my my buck, um, and then the uh, the double um, again, where we're we're observing these animals in their natural habitat, doing their natural thing, and they're unpressured. Um, given on opening day, I imagine that second group that we talked about, (laughs) as, as Ryan said, you know, you got to think maybe they were chased around a bit, but, um, somehow we found them again, ironically, after we had struggled all morning, run into some folks who came in from this private that we didn't even know was there. And they spooked that other buck that we were looking at. We didn't really talk about that, but yeah. Point being, you know, you're having these animals that are at the onset of rifle season um, feeling a lot of stress and they're running around a bunch and somehow we managed to find a couple of those groups that were doing their thing and just acting like pronghorn do um, sort of on their morning feeding patterns or afternoon That second group was bedded in the wide open and they they just decided at some point we're going to get up and wander down this draw and just feed. And the coolest part to me and the high um, was that we just got to watch them for a while before each of us took a shot. And um, that's more special than anything to me because at its core, as hunters, I mean, we get just as much enjoyment, if not more, than when we actually harvest that animal, um, watching them kind of act like they do without being pressured by people or roads, motorized vehicles, you name it. I mean, I, they they were just doing their thing. And so it was special to watch those animals. And that was, that was my high for what was yours.
1: Had to have been seeing the shine off that horn. i mean that was i will never forget that and then like the instant um celebration the instant celebration after like i saw it i was like is that it and you confirmed, and then we're like we doubled i'm like that was awesome that was that was pretty high point um i think my low point would probably have been when i when i walked into those other hunters on that buck that we had both apparently spotted from different angles and um I don't know who blew whose stock, but uh, they they were definitely very upset. I wish I could have talked to them afterward because I would have described what my view was. And I was like, I didn't see you guys here at all. Um, they they really, you know, here's one thing: is like be cautious before you flip the middle finger. It's like, like if they if they knew like how I had approached that and the fact that we had actually spotted that buck about an hour before I was going after it. The two sides of each story. Right? Yeah. So maybe, maybe get a little less frustrated. Just shake it off and find another animal. But, yeah, that was a low point um, other than me thinking that you might have uh, stabbed in your uh, femoral artery and was going to die to death when you were cutting up that uh, – or bleed to death when you were cutting up that antelope.
2: <laughs> yeah, we should explain that to the crowd, the listeners here in a minute. That just give a brief good... wrap-up. Yeah. That probably was a low point for me too. But other than that, which I'll describe in a moment, but um, yeah, just the the shot on my buck a little far back. I mean, again, like you as a hunter, try and pride yourself on every single shot you ever take, you know, in the back of your mind is going to be ethical and clean, right? Perfect world scenario. Um, and something that I've had to cope with um, in just a couple instances is that that's not always how it works out. Um, and that everyone has experiences like that. And so for, for me to see that buck shot a little far back and have to run down that draw and get the follow-up shot. Um, you know, it is, it is emotional for sure. And you, you want to be perfect, but um, not always how it works. And so I think that was a low part for me because just how it occurred. And although I was happy made a harvest um you know you want to improve always um and so that was a learning lesson for me but yeah apart from that um <laughs> as for uh just short i'll be short on this but uh you know as as i'm cutting up um that dough on the second day um using a uh, havilon surgically sharp blade um and it's hot, and you're trying to work fast, and there's flies, blah, 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 and my, all of my friends would attest, who I've hunted with, um, would attest that I am not reckless, but almost, uh, with the surgically sharp blades. Um, I've had some other occurrences, um, zipped through the hide, and um, kind of stabbed myself in the leg (laughs) with uh, uh, kind of, yeah punji style just uh went right in there and um what what part of the cleaning up the animal were you at now you're just taking um, the hide off yeah taking the hide off uh sort of the um from the back you know i like to cut make that long cut along the back strap and then peel down over the rib cage um is the way i like to uh feel dress those animals but um yeah, I just was cutting through the hide and, you know, you're tired, you've hiked a lot, you've been hunting out there for two and a half days or whatever. And uh, just that real sharp blade sort of you're cut through the hide and it feels real tough and then it zipped right through. And I buried uh, very quickly and then exit um, uh, right in my left thigh. And, um, you know, it was, that, it was, that bleed uh, as much as the animal when you shot it. <laughs> It did not. In fact, um, it didn't bleed at all, really. Um, and, yeah. yeah, I mean, luckily, was Reuben was yeah. there, and we had a little first aid kit. And, um, you know, it was, I was just lucky that it didn't go deeper. But, yeah, it cut through all, you know, through that epidermal tissue. I'm not a yeah. um, I'm not A, a, dermatologist a doctor. But, you know, but, uh, you know it, it cut all the way through past the fascia so you could see down to the meat. And it really
1: didn't bleed at all. I mean, it, it did, but, uh, um, I, you know, I don't think the depth was the issue as much as the placement. Cause it was yeah. pretty deep, <laughs> yeah. it was about a, it was
2: about a almost inch long gash. Um, but it was sort of like, yeah, you basically just, if you imagine stabbing yourself with a knife, um, it was kind of the motion. Cause I was, um, yeah cutting not away from myself, as my mom would have taught me when I was little, always cutting away from yourself. Um, it was pretty dumb, dumb in the moment, but luckily we had a first aid kit and that's why it's always, even if you're hunting what we are, we are about a mile and a quarter from the truck tops. Um, always hunt with a first aid kit and we, you know, we put some antibacterial ointment, you know, anytime you, get cut with a bloody blade that has been in another animal and i it was funny because i you know i did go to try and maybe get it sewed up um two days later when we got back home and um the the whole report that they type up the notes for your medical urgent care visit was like um patient cut himself uh um, may have been contaminated with animal blood (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I was like, makes me sound like I'm in a cult, but um, it
1: but was it's okay, it's okay because <laughs> yeah. after that we got our animals on ice, drove three hours to Billings, Montana, and we went out to the Crystal Lounge and we drank enough mixed drinks where it would have killed any contamination in your blood.
2: Killed everything in there. Yeah. Shout, <laughs> yeah. shout out to the Crystal Palace or uh, I, I don't know what it's called, but uh, Crystal yeah. Lounge. We yeah. got crystallized. Was, yeah. 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 I, I want
0: to. Can I share one take home of me listening to your guys' story? Absolutely. What, what I think um uh, led you guys to success in um in the double aspect of it cuz those antelope you spotted from the road, I think it was one thing that maybe people overlooked or and or saw those saw those antelope and tried to put a stock on them and just took the lazy way and the straight way at those antelope and they were probably in a safe spot where they busted everybody that tried to put a stock on them. And you guys were just smart enough to actually loop around and get topography and, you know, the sight line in your advantage to get on them. And no one's ever done that. And that's why those antelope are just being antelope because it's like, all right, we busted anybody that tried to stock up onto us, brush off the shoulder. And, um, Now we can just be antelope, and you guys ran right into them. That's my take home message. Yeah. You know, overlook things and things that people take for granted. Just walking into an animal is one of the most valuable things.
1: For sure.
2: I agree 100%. Yeah, that was kind of a determining factor. Yeah. Yeah, for sure.
0: Another thing, too, um, why should it be called a pronghorn versus an antelope? for the viewers here. We've all talked about it. I feel like it needs to be um, addressed.
2: Well, um, I mean, Ruben, do you want to take a shot at that? Or I, I, mean, <laughs> I, could, I could certainly chat, I could, uh, you yeah. know, chime in here about the terminology, but.
1: Well, they're, they're not, um, their closest relatives are giraffes. I think mm-hmm. um, they're, they're not at all antelope, um, And they're the last remaining species of their family on the American continents. Uh, I think there used to be in the Pleistocene, like somewhere around a dozen species of these critters running around. Uh, and they're the pronghorn is the last one standing. Um, but yeah, they, they're not, they don't have a a horn like any other animal. They, they shed a sheath. So there's not antler. It's not a horn. It's still keratin. So it's hair. It's not, it's not calcium like an antler. Um, and they're just their own deal. They smell like Frito-Lays potato chips. Like they're just, uh, you know, weird <laughs> animals. So like they're not antelope. Like that's the thing is mm-hmm. like um, it's almost a disservice. Not only is it incorrect yeah. taxonomically, but it's like almost a disservice to call them an antelope because
0: the
1: they're their problem. own thing. Yeah. Um, and they um, have a lot of, uh, they have a lot of different habitat requirements and different ways of living probably than, actual antelope i know for sure than actual antelope in uh africa there uh alec probably has a couple things to say about that because antelope conservation is something um it's really important uh with the way that the landscape is being used in the past decades um anything you want to touch on like montana wyoming whatever the west with pronghorn what's what's what are their habitat needs what's a problem
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot to talk about on that front. And I realized at the beginning of this conversation, I, I didn't mention, you know, I mean, um, really like they are such a unique species and that they're the only endemic ungulate to North America. And they've been around for, I think over a million years or something. I'd have to verify that. Um, But that's the interesting part about, like you said, Ruben and Cousin of the giraffe, and they have um, certain characteristics that are just so different from all the other species that we hunt, the ungulate species that we hunt. And so um, the research on pronghorn even recently has been fairly new about how they move about the landscape. And um, the really interesting part is that they are much more susceptible to landscape sort of barriers to movement um than other ungulates i mean when we think about deer and those muleys can hop as high as they want to you know seemingly 30 feet in the air when they run away from you when you spook them during rifle season or white uh, whitetail of course can jump real high but um elk you know They just tear down the fences, Um, but uh, just blow right through them. But, um, you know, antelope are super susceptible being smaller body size and then also how they cross fence lines and other sort of structures um, to uh, those barriers. And so when you think about the interior west and how many fences are on the landscape, I mean, a lot of the science that has emerged um, from research over, over the last decade has shown that, these things really need connected habitats in order to survive and move to their seasonal ranges. And when we think about pronghorn movement along transportation corridors, big highways, which of course have fences along them for miles and miles. And when we think about fence barriers in general, across the public private interface, I mean, it is this matrix of barriers and some of the folks that I've worked with in conservation who are researching pronghorn movements have really come out with some amazing science to show why we need to make fencing and other barriers, uh, I guess, improve them to improve. permeable conduct. type, yeah, permeable.
0: yeah.
2: Yeah. And to improve connectivity. Um, Another thing i failed to mention at the beginning of this episode is that I just recently moved to Wyoming um, to work for a conservation organization down here. And um, we're working directly on um, identifying these migratory pathways that these pronghorn use. Um, most of that work has been done by, um, you know, the, the state agency, uh, Wyoming Game and Fish Department, and, um, to identify how these animals move on the landscape and where we need to protect their habitat. Um, Wyoming, of course, has some of the best habitat, uh, based on your prior episode that I did listen to, um, you know, it's got some of the best habitat, um, in the world for pronghorn and has the highest population of pronghorn, um, compared to any other state or any other place in the world. And, um, it's mostly because of habitat and uh, the the work we've been doing down here, at least in the onset of me working for this conservation organization is trying to say, Hey, like these migratory pathways that they move along um, are important for the survival of the, the whole herd. Um, and specifically uh, for example, the sublet pronghorn herd here in, uh, you know, kind of South, uh, southwestern Wyoming, um, you know, used to be 40,000 strong. And of course we had one of the harshest winters um, in a long time down here and, uh, lost probably upwards of 50% of the population, which is insane. Um, really crazy. (laughs) If, if anything that shows a real need to conserve their migratory pathways and their migratory habitat, now um, just to be safe Um, in the context of other issues like drought um, kind of the same barriers that they usually deal with and then loss of habitat and um, part of that issue this winter was also pneumonia um, which is not that common um, in those populations when that is expressed and they lose a lot of animals but the harsh winter certainly um, probably brought that out and uh, the disease was expressed. So anyway, um, a lot of factors to, to deal with there, but, um, erring on the side of caution and trying to conserve their, you know, um, habitat and, and connectivity across landscapes is like paramount to pronghorn conservation.
1: As it is with a lot of other species too, like mule deer, mm-hmm. elk and, and pretty much everything, but it sounds like pronghorn, especially, susceptible to uh barriers whereas other animals not as much
0: yeah what's kind of a main factor to like those antelope not being available to move transparently through the environment is it more like the winter habitat where they can get into or is it just a thing of you know they're stuck where they're stuck and it takes so much energy to move throughout the landscape now where my mig- migratory patterns used to be a hundred and some miles long, and now they're shortened due to fence lines and highways and all sorts of things.
2: I mean, I would say like increasing development is, is definitely an issue for ungulates in a lot of places, including mm-hmm. yeah, mule deer. And um, you know, something that we've tried to work on initially here is just supporting even seasonal recreation closures. Um, when we think about like increasing recreation use on the landscape, um, we got to think about where these animals move during very specific times on the landscape. Um, and to try and answer your question, Ryan, I think, I mean, it's, it's large scale, some of those barriers on the landscapes like fences. Um, but then also you throw in that loss of habitat from increased development. I mean, It's a serious issue. And um, I don't know in terms of research and the science on it, how um, you could analyze that across a a huge landscape, where, if you could measure the impact um, and attribute it directly towards development. I do think it's a conglomerate of um, factors um, that are impacting on a a population level. Um, But obviously the tough winter I mean Wyoming had some record snow levels down here um, you know, as did Utah when you think about the other ungulates that were affected around the West. I talked to people over there, but um i I think that uh when you factor in harsh winter, deep snow levels which can affect pronghorn movement, and then some of the barriers um and then throw in the expression of some diseases and like pneumonia that, um, and I forget the exact scientific name of that, um, that a biologist from Wyoming game and fish department told me the other day, um, doesn't matter what the name is, the uh, scientific name of the disease, it, it killed a ton of antelope this year. And so, um, yeah, I think it's, it's a bunch of different issues, but, um, that's exactly why, when we, when we have opportunities through the state agencies to identify these areas and put some, yeah. put some kind of protections on them that aren't extremely limiting towards uh, private landowners or anything, but they, at least for some of the contigu- contiguous chunks of public land and where these bottlenecks happen, where these uh, pinch points in the landscape um, occur, where these animals have to move through, protecting some of those key areas and how they migrate to those seasonal habitats Mm -hmm. is like the most important part. And um, when I mentioned the sublet pronghorn herd, I mean, that's like one of the longest mapped migrations of ungulates in the lower 48. And so there's a real emphasis on, you know, what inherent value does that wildlife resource have to the public? And I think here in Wyoming, it's, it's extremely important. Um, because people love and cherish those animals for just literally their base value. And then you throw in the fact that people love to eat them, people love to hunt them, people love to see them on the landscape. And so, yeah, I hope that answered your question generally. Yeah,
0: no, that, that totally did. And I think even Utah, Wyoming, Montana, all these, all these states have done a, a pretty dang good job years prior of getting above this and like classifying certain uh wintering habitats and all these habitats that we need to protect because the west is growing faster than anywhere in the united states right now and agencies have to be above this to protect our wildlife resources and i I think they've done a great job of it you know of protecting all these wintering areas, because once you get all this, all these buildings and everything on a landscape, these, these animals can't survive a harsh winter. Like they just did as good as they would if they had more landscape to live on and spread out and diseases wouldn't be as prevalent. It would help them a lot better, but hopefully we can exist on the landscape and have our malls and our water parks. And then also, um, be able to protect them and how always have our natural resources because that's probably the most important
2: agreed hundred mm-hmm.
1: percent yeah yeah well any any final concluding thoughts on this uh, story here alec i did want to add just a tidbit of information that the motel we stayed at we put our hunting edition bush lights in the refrigerator after this place had just been ah. cleaned with some type of omnipotent lysol And when we got back that night to sit down after our hunt and crack open those bush lights, they tasted like Lysol. I've never experienced that before in my life, but it somehow permeated the can. That's how concentrated the cleaning agent was in this motel room. But that's what you get when you're going out in uh, some of the boony spots to hunt Pronghorn, I guess.
2: It it was impressive. Somehow the taste of Clorox got infused into the beer on the interior (laughs) of the can. Mm. Yeah. Um, people paid big bucks for that stuff. bad. (laughs) Yeah,
1: (laughs) We paid big bucks for the hotel room because it was hunting season, but. Uh, Yeah, it
2: was good though. I mean, it's, uh, having those little comforts, you know, day to day when you're hunting. And, uh, you know, I, I think, um, obviously when we were 20, 21 years old, you're like way more willing to rough it.
0: Yeah.
2: And as you start to feel the pains of aging, um, you start to think, well, maybe I could redistribute my yeah. very limited, um, flexible uh, income. Maybe both. I can sit. Both both in
1: a... <laughs> <laughs> maybe I can sit at the end of a long day of pronghorn hunting in an air-conditioned hotel room, motel room, watching some college ball while eating deep-dish pizza, drinking a Lysol beer. Cool rock, dude. <laughs>
0: living life living life what are the rich people doing Hey, you know what? Uh, beer tasted bad but um we'll always remember that one so oh yeah. right. right that's good well, well <laughs> thank you yeah, yeah. well thanks alec for uh joining us here on the storied podcast i'm glad to hear your insight on uh the old uh mammalia movement through the through the Western United States and then also your story, you and uh, Ruben's story you guys had together. It's always better hunting things with an individual you can share it with, you know? So um, I'm glad to hear that story and I'm glad you were on to tell a story. We'll have to have you on next time or well, another time and talk about the old moose hunt or something
2: i would love that or the time that i lost my boots but uh we all (laughs) so uh but i i really appreciate it guys and um, thanks for what you're doing and thanks for weaving in a conservation message i mean i think if i could leave the listeners with anything it would be you know that um right now it's like this is the time we get involved and more important than ever as you just said ryan to just Mm -hmm. Get involved in conservation organizations because as the West grows, I mean, we need good advocates to say this is the right thing to do for wildlife, um, whether or not you hunt. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's about, you know, there's a lot of pressures on these animals and um, we could talk all day about those. But um, thanks for giving me a little bit of outlet. And I, I really enjoyed the time. And, um, yeah, appreciate what you guys do. So, yeah. well, Thank you will do
0: yep thank you guys and tune in to next week's episode when we talk about another story you know <laughs> hope everybody enjoyed this week's episode of the story podcast if you like our recipes and our stories follow us on instagram at story podcast official that is story podcast official next week we talk elk me and ruben share our first elk stories one in Utah and one
2: in Montana.